Welcome to Where I Come From, a podcast devoted to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Terry Pettit, former national championship volleyball coach at Nebraska, author, poet, and mentor to coaches across the country. We talked about what he learned from his dad, his love for writing, how he stumbled into volleyball coaching, turning Nebraska into a national powerhouse, and the tension between creativity and competitiveness, what drove him out of coaching at 53 years old. The most important thing, I think, in any endeavor is curiosity. If you're curious, you're eventually going to kind of become your own university. So I didn't know there were women until we had the organizational women meeting and there were like 30 kids there, none of whom had ever played a game of volleyball. I wasn't looking for all around people. I was, if you were going to be on Nebraska volleyball, you had to do something, whether it was a lateral move, a vertical jump, arm speed, you had to do something at a highly extraordinary level and that we could fit those parts together. This is where I come from. If I could coach again, I would speak in a softer voice. I would let players discover more things for themselves. I would encourage my assistants to speak in a louder voice. I would recruit a more diverse roster. I would control less and empower more. I would find ways for players to take care of themselves. I would travel farther in the preseason. I would encourage each team member to to, befriend the disabled, the disenfranchised, the people less fortunate. I would take more risk in scheduling. I would purchase season tickets and give them to people who did not have access. I would open practice to any who wanted to watch. I would fight harder for women's, for opportunities for women. I would risk losing more matches in the preseason to prepare for the championship. I would work to develop the trust that I had with setters with other positions. I would let go of the game when I got home to my family. I would wait until the next day to speak to a player who had not played her best. I would make the effort to understand what players are dealing with off the court. I would let players know they are more than their performance. But this is not gonna happen because my time has passed. I've left the arena for good and I will not coach again. Well, this poem is titled, If I Could Coach Again, and it's a little misleading, the poem, in that many of these things I did, it's it's meant to also be kind of instruction for a younger coach, that these are things you need to consider. For example, the phrase, um, I would try to have the same relationship with setters, with other players I had with setters. The key with setters is time. I'm spending an hour and a half with them a day, one-on-one. You can't do that. There's just not enough time. So it's it's something you'd like to do, um, but somebody else has to give those other players that attention, another, another assistant coach. Um, but th- there are some things in here that, you know, um, Certainly, I would do better than I did, um, but mostly, this is designed as a way to kind of probe people that are still coaching 
and saying, are you considering these things, these aspects? What did you think you had to add as a mentor and a you know presenter and a speaker and a leadership guy, you know, counselor? Uh, what did you think was missing out there that you could help people with? Well, I think there's a couple of things. All the time I was coaching, I was really more interested in leadership and team building than the sport itself. In other words, if, if I'd have been coaching baseball, I, I would have approached it very similar. As a matter of fact, my, my dad was a baseball coach. My brother was a baseball coach. My, my nephew was Mr. Baseball in Indiana and Mr. Football. So um, the point being, the dynamics of a team coming together interested me more than whether or not it was volleyball or basketball or baseball. The intangibles. Well, I, I, I read a lot of, uh, of that stuff. Warren Bennis, who taught at USC, but at, at one point was probably considered um, maybe as knowledgeable about leadership as anybody. But I read everything he wrote. Um, what did you think you knew that others didn't? Here's, here's what I knew that others didn't. Universities will hire, say, a performance coach to work with a team, or they'll hire a psychologist to work with a coach. Um, a psychologist could help a fighter pilot. A performance coach um, could help a fighter pilot. But another fighter pilot can help a fighter pilot more than anybody else. In other words, someone who has been in that situation. Right. Someone who understands um, what it's like maybe when you don't get the support you want or who understands what it means to lose a competition when you thought you were fully prepared to win. The first year I was mentoring, I worked with a, a prominent coach and went down and watched practice and he came over and he said, you know, our, our setter's just not jumping as well as she used to. And I said, your setter's pregnant. And he said, well, I don't think so. We sent over to the health center or whatever. I said, you don't trust me? I've got a former player living in this town. Let me, let, let's call her over. She comes over and she says, I'm not going to name the name, but I said, what do you think of the setter out here? She says she's pregnant. In other words, the coach was so immersed in this, he's one week from opening the season, and, and a very good player is pregnant. Not pregnant, eight months pregnant. Really? Okay. She was in denial. He was in denial. The whole team was in denial. So we, you know... I, I helped that coach work through that. What does that have to do with volleyball? Not much. Right. It's more about it's more about having someone that you trust who's outside the situation, therefore they're, they can step back and see a, a little larger picture, but you trust them because they've been in situations where things have happened. When you say, how do you mentor people? It's, it's just different. Everyone is different. Everybody has 
everybody has strengths. The thing I try to do first when I'm mentoring someone is help them discover what they are naturally talented at. People don't know, do they? Very rarely. It's why, it's why everybody sings loud in church who can't, can't sing. <laughs> uh, um, so help them discover what that is and then help them to find ways to leverage it. So what, what, you know, if, when I look at my own talents, there's a, there's a couple things that come to the fore. One is I can pretty quickly see somebody move or walk and tell you what they're capable of doing. And then the other thing is situations. If I watch a sport long enough, I can almost predict what's going to happen. Hmm. Well, in volleyball, that's invaluable in serving and blocking. It brings, it brings that talent into it. And so the way I leverage that with Nebraska Volleyball, we could start at any rotation and those kids could block hmm. and they could serve. And so tactically, as a coach, I get to be involved a little bit more. But other coaches have different talents. Christy Johnson is, is um, <coughs> very intuitive. You know, she was, she was intuitive as a player. And so where most coaches, if they didn't play well, might come back and ream a team or put them through an extra hard practice, Christie's intuition might say, we need to take tomorrow off, you know, and she'll head in a different direction. So she's more likely to write a team that's about to go off the rails than most coaches. Um, uh, I think I think Kirsten has a, a lot of talents as well. You know, they were both they're both setters, uh, and you can have all the athleticism in the world, but you're not going to be a successful setter if you don't know how to both serve the people around you and demand from the people around you, and you have to know which ones to do it at which time. That's not, you can learn some of that, but some of it is more of a reflection of what you brought with you, you know, from your family. And um, I, I've said several times, no one who wasn't a setter at Nebraska, and we had a lot of great players who weren't setters, could have played the setter position at Nebraska and, and done the things that Fiona did or Gracia did, or Christy did, or Nikki Stricker, or Tisha Delaney, or they all had that ability to serve and lead at the same time. For the third spring in a row, three boys pull wagon loads of birch scrap and plywood, hauling broken parts of a pergola and finch feeder out to the, to the deer path that parallels the spur line. The boys are oblivious to coyote scat that covers the trail to a rotting cottonwood on the east side of the tracks, three of its five branches sprouting leaves like the hair on an old-timer's scalp. Ignorant of geometry or physics, each boy nails a few boards until the branches become a perch that holds not much more than himself. And when each is finished turning in circles with a nail in his mouth, that is where they sit. 25 feet above the last scraps of adolescence, pleased with what they've come to, an indescribable urge to both jump 
and hold tight to the bark beneath their knees. You grew up in small town Indiana, right? Mm -hmm. What was the town? Crown Point, it's the county seat of Lake County. So it, at the north end is Lake Michigan. We were a county seat. It was, uh, my dad would always say, we're a retired farmer's community. It was probably 8,000, 6, 8,000 when I grew up. And probably by the time I was in college, it might have been uh, 20, 18, 20,000. What did your family do? My dad was a milkman and a coach. And uh, my brothers and I rode on the milk route with him all the way up through high school. He would drop us off after working with him. And um, he would, he had tremendous attention to detail. So if I went in, if I took a gallon of milk in the house and placed it in the refrigerator, when I came back, he'd say, what brand of refrigerator was it? He did everything he could to get me to notice detail. Really? Yes. And played all kinds of brain games and whatever to get me to, to get me to pay attention to things. And I, th I think the key, you know, who knows how many keys there are or needles in a haystack, but the, the, the most important thing I think in any endeavor is curiosity. If you're curious, you're eventually going to kind of become your own university. You're going to kind of go out and try and figure out things or, or, or go find people who know things. Um, so that, that was important to me in, uh, in choosing setters. It was important to me in assistant coaches. You know, I want to be around people that are, that are curious. Hmm. Uh, your mother? My mother, um, I don't think I fully appreciated the complexity of, of my mother growing up. Um, and I say that because she, um, when I was about 18, she told me she'd been married before. Really? And the deal was, my father had been in the uh, Southern Pacific for three years, out, out, in, the, out in the islands and being strafed and all that, and he came back and pre World War Two, right? No, this is World War Two. World War Two. So he he comes back from the South Pacific to California, meets my mother. My mother married uh, her sweetheart, and he was killed one week later on a troop transport going to the war. Wow. Um, so he, my dad, met my mom probably three years after that. Uh, and why they chose not to share that, I think, was my mother's decision. Um, but when she when she did share it to me, I thought you just you just became much more complex than I ever knew. The fact that you dealt with that, the fact that you were able to let that go and live in a healthy marriage, uh, it also uh, probably explained some of her protectiveness with her kids. Um, but for the most part, when it came to athletics, you know, it, it was my dad. My, you know, we, we played catch every day. It used to irritate me when he couldn't and my mom would insist that we, she would go out and she would push the ball toward me. <laughs> With, 
without a shoulder rotation. Right. Um, but she, but she was, a, you know, an avid reader. Uh, supported her kids. Um, uh, she died much too soon of colon cancer. I thought my dad would die within a week. She died when she was 65, back in 89. I didn't think he'd live a week. And he, he ended up living to 93. Golf saved his life. Hmm. He, he became the director of the uh, senior event each week at the local goat ranch. A golf club that but we both were greenskeepers at and it it, um, it it saved him you know uh, so I was we were really fortunate to have him till he was 93 but baseball was your family's game huh? yeah uh, my dad was my little league coach he was a Babe Ruth league coach um, he built a pitch back before there were pitch backs it was seven feet tall stretched woven with inner tubes, batter, <laughs> painted on the side. Really? We had a pitching mound. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had the mound. It was, uh, it seems to me in Little League, it was like 60 feet, 6 inches. And I was a catcher. My brother was a pitcher. And um, every day, I mean, there was not a day we did not play pickup something. But primarily baseball. You know, even on days when we were told we couldn't, you know, in the dog days of August, we'd throw the stuff out the window and climb out the window and go down. And, and my, my, you know, at the time, my dad had to know what we were doing, but we'd go down and... and this and, is like in the backyard? Oh, no, we'd go down to a park. In the backyard... Where, the, where was the backstop? Um, in the... Um, was it mobile? No, oh, you're talking about the pitchback? Yeah. Well, the pitchback was just for learning to pitch. Okay. And, you know, we tried everything. You've, I'm sure you've seen this if you're in baseball, but where you put the rope on the ball to learn to hit the curveball, you know, you go around in a circle. You know, we did, we did that. We had, we had a, a basketball rim in the, in the bedroom out of a potato chip can. We had... Uh, a chinning bar, but he would never ask us if we did this stuff. He would provide the opportunity to do it. And J Jack was a, a much better athlete. He he was drafted by the White Sox and then got in a car accident when he was pitching for Valparaiso and tore up his his uh, foot and couldn't really pitch off it. You had how many siblings? Two. The other one didn't didn't really play sports. He came along later. But um, you know, it, we, we were we were not atypical. Everybody at that in that generation, um, you know, one night I was talking to Ann, and I could name sixty kids in our neighborhood, and the boys played basketball or baseball every day. That's just what you did. And where did your where did your love of writing come from? Uh I think reading. I think reading. And um, we used to go down to the library, and my brother had all of the um, Chip Hilton books. I don't know if you know what Chip Hilton is, but he was an all-around athlete. Claire B., who was a former collegiate, successful collegiate basketball coach, wrote them. I was into Hardy Boys, and we would go get a couple books each week. 
and our parents would send us to bed, but I had a lantern that I would read under the covers. Now, obviously, they knew I was reading because if you came by the room, right. when you're six years, you know, you've got a six-year-old in there and the lantern's on, something's going on. Um, but I think it was, I think it was reading, just reading a lot. I remember as a young kid in fourth grade, I wasn't a very good student, but I wrote an encyclopedia. And, you know, the <laughs> the subjects were what would interest a fourth grader. Right. Um, went to a small liberal arts college, and the first day met the guy that was assigned to me that to be a counselor. And he said, what do you want to be? And I said, I think I want to be a sports writer. And he, the look on his face, like he was really disappointed. <laughs> Terry, I've gotten that look a lot. <laughs> no, like, like, isn't there a higher calling, or or something? And my mother is nodding uh, her head right now. And I didn't know what he meant. I, I didn't know what he meant by that because my favorite writers were, uh, you know, the writers uh, for Sports Illustrated, and. I, and so anyway, ended up majoring in uh, English and literature and with a minor in religion and um, fell into best friends who were writers. Uh, one of them, Paul Hoover, um, who's mentioned on the back cover there, uh, edited the Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. He's probably written 20 books and he's written another four or five in translation. John Mort who was also a close friend, went to Vietnam and wrote four or five novels. Hmm. And uh, there were just the, there were the three of us. And, you know, the college wasn't big, 1,200, but there, uh, I was really lucky to be around other people who wanted to do this. I've always thought the best coaches, or some of the best coaches, had a background in something else. Um, uh, Coach Osborne was in Ed Syke. Uh, um, guy that coached the Lakers. Uh, Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson. You know he he um, he obviously was well read and and got into other things. Uh, I think Paterno was a Shakespeare scholar. Hmm. Uh, I, yeah, and I also think the longer you coach. You know, once you've learned your craft, I don't know that you need to hear another volleyball coach talk. You need to hear somebody in other disciplines. That's interesting. Yeah, and so I always encourage the coaches that I work with uh, to go listen to somebody who's really extraordinary in another discipline. And, and most of the stuff that I read, I'd say 80-90% 80, 80, is nonfiction in other areas, whether it's physics or uh, politics or whatever, because you're likely to be jolted into creativity. I mean, what, what writing, what attracted me to writing was metaphor, the idea of pulling something from one universe into another universe and, and getting an, an idea from that. So when I watched in 89, when I watched Kansas win the NCAA championship. 88. 88. Danny Manning. And the games played at warp speed. It was Both teams had over 50 points at halftime. 
which wasn't to Kansas' advantage. Uh, I, you know, I said, "What? How does this apply to us? What's what's going on here?" And I didn't get the answer till about three weeks later. And the the answer was, when we were running the slide attack, where you go off one foot behind the behind the setter, we were taking, um, we were going right left after the ball was set. And I thought, what if we just go, if we're further along and we just go left? So, so we're speeding this up one step. Right. And what I found was we were not only better and it, it caused chaos on the block on the other side, but our air percentage was lower. So speeding up created fewer errors. Think of it this way. If you're playing catch with, a, with your kid in the front yard, you don't throw the ball high. It's on a line. It's easier to intercept something when it's quick than when it's slow. And so I remember reading Crazy Horse and getting ideas for volleyball systems from Crazy Horse. Really? Like what? Uh, well, when the Native Americans were sneaking back from Oklahoma trying to return to their territories, they would frequently create illusions about what was happening. Okay. In other words, that they, so, so that the cavalry, whoever was looking for them, would think they were one place when they were really another. Right. You can do the same thing in volleyball in subtle ways. So if, I, I, I think several, several, several different ways. One is if I, say we're in 6-2, and I run the middle, middle blocker right at the other middle blocker, I, and I don't mean a space or a gap or whatever. She can't move. Okay? So I'm going to create a gap either way. If, you know how, you know how um, football coaches script plays? They might have as many as 10 to 15 plays scripted before a game begins. And the idea is what we're going to do is run these plays and see if, see how the other team responds. In volleyball, you have patterns. And what happens in the first six to 10 plays has more impact on the brains of the opponent than other plays. Huh. Because you're, you're on alert, you know. It's like the, the bulls would come down when they were great and they'd throw the ball into their center and the first three times down. Now, he'd never get a pass the rest of the game, but they would try and convince the opponent that this guy could score. Right. Okay. Well, if you create a pattern early in a match, and let's say I beat you on a 31, or let's say I go on a 31 and do a step in, it's imprinted. It's like dunking on you or something. So I can use that as a way to kind of deflect your alertness for the rest of a match. The opposite is also true. In the first in the first third of the first set, 
you're going to find out pretty quickly what the other team is try is going to try to do. Because teams are kids are capable of following a game plan for at least three or four points. They may forget about it, but right. but if they come out and the first three balls go to your setter, you know they're attacking your your setter in the back row. You can figure out this is this is where they're going with this. Okay, I want to get to Lewisburg College. Okay, uh, you graduate from Manchester in Indiana. You spend a couple years doing this and that, right? Right. Uh, you go to Arkansas. Right. You get your master's. Uh, in M- MFA in creative writing. In creative writing. And it was a recession. It was like 1974 was a recession, and there weren't jobs. So I got in the car, and I don't know why I went in the direction. I was thinking about that this morning. Why, why didn't I just go back to the Midwest? But I got in a car, and I knew I wouldn't get out of the car till I got to Virginia. And because I didn't stop anywhere in Tennessee or Arkansas, but got in Virginia, crossed the line, and then went in colleges as I came to them. The first college I went to was King's College. Then I went to Radford. Then I went to colleges up near Charlottesville and whatever. And you're just looking for a job. I'm looking for a job. Walking in. And then I got up there and came down. I got into Maryland and came down uh, that county that's out in the ocean. And You're failing a lot, right? It no, was... no, that's the that's the odd thing. By the, by the time I came down off, uh, entered the continental United States somewhere around Norfolk, Virginia, I had three job offers. Really? Yeah. At Radford College, uh, a community college, and I, I spent a week doing this. And uh, it was it taught me a lot of things. Uh, for one thing, I had offers because I was there. An opening created, and I walked in, and I was there, and they thought, well, geez, if this guy's yeah. willing to just, you know. Knock on my door. So I decided to take a shortcut on the way back and took a shortcut into North Carolina and came to this town, Lewisburg. And there was a sign there at a stoplight. It said, the oldest... Uh, junior college in the country, chartered in 1600 and something. And I sat through three light changes trying to decide, do you, you know, you've got jobs, uh, job offers. But Meanwhile, there's cars honking behind No, there, there wasn't that much, <laughs> there wasn't that much civilization going on. <laughs> so I decided I'll go see. So I pull into the parking lot at the college and it reminds me of the college that I went to college at, it's a small liberal arts college, and it was affiliated with the Methodist Church. And the de- and I go up and uh, they tell me, well, the dean is the person who hires, and he's not here today. And so I decided, he said, but he'll be here tomorrow. So I decided to go down to the only motel in town, get a room, come back the next morning. And he was impressed by that. He didn't really need an English teacher, but he did need a tennis coach and a golf coach. And, and uh, so he says, you know, well, you know, we could have you teach four English classes and um, coach golf and tennis. 
Can I ask? Can I can I interrupt? Did you know anything about golf and tennis at the time? Well, I played golf in college. Okay. okay. So I was pretty confident about that. You qualified in one. I qualified in one. Okay. And I had a great friend at Arkansas who was the captain of the tennis team, and we used to play bridge together. So I said I can do that. And then I went back to Arkansas, and for two weeks, hit balls with the best player on the team. And to the point where I thought I could fake it. <laughs> and I, I really had no interest in coaching, but I did have an interest in a job. Right. Um, as, so, as one should. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, they, they offered me the job. We went there. And both of those sports were in the same season. So I'd go to one, one practice and then the other practice. And did that for a year, and also took on the literary magazine, coached the four classes, and then at the first faculty meeting, the president of the college comes up and says, I see on your resume you, you played volleyball, and I had played volleyball on an, on an amateur team that was coached by the 68 Olympic coach. Just He's, coincidentally, right? Just coincidentally. In Chicago? In Chicago. And this is after Manchester, before Arkansas. Yeah. You're bumming around a couple years. Well, I was in grad school in theology. Okay. I had a, uh, and I also That's... did two years of alternative service, and huh. wrote was a writer, traveled the country, country made fifteen dollars a month. Fifteen dollars a month. Fifteen dollars a month. <laughs> and they uh, and they provided a house to live in, and food at the national offices of the Church of the Brethren. But I covered protests, I covered hurricanes, I covered everything. Um, so anyway, he says, would you coach our volleyball team? I said, sure. I didn't know he meant women. There were no women's sports then. This is 1975, right? 74. 74. So Title IX had come in about a year and a half before, but they were just forming their teams. So I didn't know there were women until we had the organizational women a meeting, and they were like... 30 kids there, none of whom had ever played a game of volleyball. Wow. Not, not one set. So much so that when we went out the first match, we didn't rotate. We lost 15-0 <laughs> and did not rotate. Hey, that makes the game a lot yeah. simpler when you don't have to rotate. <laughs> but two weeks later, we went to, that was Chowan College, we went there and beat them. And uh, uh, I was lucky enough that there were athletes at the school that the, bat, the basketball coach had recruited, and uh, we silk screened these T-shirts and made them look good. And they, if they came out, they could get a, the T-shirt. And um, you know that's. You did this in '74, '75, and '76. Right. You, you went 47 and 17. Right. How did you learn the game? How did you get good at it? Well, I played. Uh, you know, you're at the start of something. So the fact that I'd played for Kenneth Allen in Chicago with Mick Haley, um, Terry Laskavich, who Russ became... Rose. Uh, he wasn't on the team then. Okay. He, was, he, was, he was later, but Laskavich was. And Laskavich was on the second team, and Jerry Angle, who later coached at Northwestern. And none of us knew anything about coaching, but at least you'd played. How did you end... I'm sorry. How did you end up on this club volleyball team? 
uh, was in Elgin, Illinois, writing for the Church of the Brethren, and went to a rec center and was peppering. And this guy comes over and says, he says, you guys want to play some two-on-two or whatever. Well, his name was Jim Vineyard, and he was one of the best players in the country. And he said, you want to, I'd like you to come play on our team. He said, you won't actually be playing with me, but we have three teams. And so I hopped in the car and got down there, and there's Jim Coleman, the 68 Olympic coach. I had no idea who he was. So it was pure chance. What an odd thing. <laughs> it was just pure. It's about as odd as it gets. <laughs> yeah, it was just pure chance. So I played there for two years. I was probably the worst player on the team. Um, but that put me ahead, against, ahead of most people. Yeah. You know that I had some concept of of what you, what you do, and uh, um, so three seasons at Lewisburg. Three seasons at Lewisburg, and then you're walking by a trash can one day. Well, there were two there were two job op- opportunities in the trash can: Minnesota and Nebraska. Now wait a second, tell me more about the walking by the trash can though, because that's well, I went down to Paul Sanford's office. Paul Sanford was the women's basketball coach, and. Um, he says, hey, these came in. And I looked at them and I thought, well, I know where Minnesota is. I had no idea where Nebraska was. I mean, I, I knew where it was, but I couldn't have told you the surrounding states. <laughs> and so I called Minnesota and they, and they were very direct and honest. They said, well, we're gonna hire, we're starting a program, we're gonna hire a, 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 women's, a women's volleyball coach and we wanna hire a female. So then I called Nebraska and um, they said, well, you can come interview, but you'll, you'll need to get here. We're not gonna provide any transportation. So, uh, you know, North Carolina is a long way. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, got in the car, drove across the West Virginia Turnpike, which was three lanes, and then crossed over into Ohio, went and visited my dad and mom, drove out to Lincoln, and there was something brilliant about what happened next. The interview, they had six or seven players that were there during the summer, and they had me run a practice. Hmm. And I ran the practice, and the kids responded, you know. And, and, and even though I, I probably didn't know what I was doing, it looked like I did, you know. It, it looked like I was organized. You had drills, and you had. Right, I had, yeah, expectations. So. This is, a, this is in the Coliseum? In the Coliseum. Yeah, and the the uh, the guy that had coached at John F. Kennedy was the was the women's basketball coach. John F. Kennedy is a is a college in Wahoo. Right. Yeah. That you know was pretty successful women's basketball team for a couple of years. Yeah. And uh, Nicodemus George Nicodemus, and he was there watching me run the practice. Maybe he helped me get the job. I don't know. Um, so they offered me the job, but I knew I wasn't their first offer. Was it Devaney who offered you? No, it was okay. June B. Davis, who was okay. the senior women's. Uh, she was the he, she was the senior senior women's administrator, and so they offered me the job, and I took about two or three days to decide whether I wanted to do this, because I wanted to get back into the center of the country, but I wanted to do it as a creative writing teacher. But I thought, well, we'll do this, you know, we'll see see what happens. See what happens. See what happens, and so that. I thought I'd be there two or three years, and it turned out to be 23, 23 and then another three as assistant AD. 
Did you have a vision for what you wanted to do when you took the job? Like, how quickly did you figure out this is how I win at Nebraska? No. <laughs> no. Um, uh, certainly my first four years I was motivated by survival. You know, I was, uh, I came close to being fired the first year. Um, and I don't want to get into that because everybody was inexperienced. So it wasn't just the coaches that were inexperienced, the administrators were inexperienced. They had no idea how to, uh, you were separate from the men's department and you didn't have the, re our, our total budget for the first year for the whole department, including salaries was 55,000. That's not just volleyball, that's- No, that's all the sports. All the sports. All the sports. I was hired for $12,000. And when we traveled, we took balls with us. You took a 15-passenger van, one coach, 12 players, a trainer, a manager, and drove to Madison, Wisconsin. I did that two weeks after being hired. And I, you know, I, I didn't even have time to evaluate the players. So it was survival. Our regional was in uh, Fargo. It was at the University of North Dakota, that which is in Grand Forks. Grand Forks. It took us two days to get there. And a blizzard came in and we couldn't leave the hotel for like five days. Couldn't even open the door. Southwest Missouri, who was the best team at the time, gets on a plane, flies home. We're, we're there this van. <laughs> was there anybody watching? I mean, Nebraska had a volleyball culture. Uh, Not really. Not really. Uh, the uh, first match we played Drake, we set up uh, folding chairs that were in a closet at the side of the Coliseum. Um, the, players, the players and I set them up. You couldn't set up one net. You had to set up five nets because they were anchored on the stage and they were anchored in the balcony. And on the stage, you had the karate club working out all the time. And, um, you know, you had these old curtains that were were disintegrating. Right. Um, but it was fine, you know. So we, there were probably, I think, at the first match, maybe 40 people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that... There was a cult, there, there was talent. Um, the, um, used to be called USVBA, it's now USAV, was strong in town and there were clubs. None of them were particularly happy about the university um, beginning a full-time program. Really? Be yeah, because those, those... They drew from the same pool, huh? Well, they drew the college players to play in the spring. Yeah. And as soon as I got there, I said, we're not... We're not going to do this. We're going to train as a university team. We didn't have the money to do it. I got money. I got money and and uh, from Sertoma clubs, and borrowed station wagons from uh, a dealership in Crete, and we slept in sleeping bags, and were completely unfunded. But I just felt this program can't grow unless, you know, we do this. So the first year, I think we had three kids on partial scholarships. Um, 
maybe two of them were, were there and one coming in. But we had kept about 24 players, and they were athletes. They were good athletes. And many of those kids went on and impacted Nebraska volleyball in a lot of ways. Nancy Grant Colson. What was the turning point, Terry? Kathy Noth. Why? Um, well, I think at the same at the same Kathy Noth came in probably eighty. Yeah, eighty. It took me four years to figure things out. Uh, from a recruiting standpoint, to change what I was looking for, to go after athletes. And she was a, uh, we could, this is before NCAA, so we could have tryouts. She comes to town, she's 5'8", she grabs the rim. And it was, she was either going to go to play basketball at Creighton for Bruce, who'd been her high school basketball coach, or at Nebraska to play volleyball. And we were probably just a step or two ahead of them in terms of development. Mm -hmm. And it may have been that she liked volleyball better. I don't know. But she, she came in, a girl named Mary Bicey was the other setter, came down from Minnesota. Minnesota didn't recruit her because she was too small. She was a great player. And we got it all of a sudden, got Annie Adamsack, who was Miss Softball, Miss Basketball, Miss Volleyball out of Minnesota, um, Sharon Kramer out of Clinton, Iowa. We, we started to get talent. And recruiting was different then. There was no social media. There was, there was no video. So you had to go find these people. And we, we were lucky, or I was lucky, in finding uh, uh, talent. But... You know, and I, I emailed this to Kathy a couple weeks ago. I said, you were the key because she was an all-around player. Her first two years, she was the best attacker in the Big Eight. Her junior year, I said, let's make her into a setter, which really seemed stupid. Um, but three years later, she goes to the national team as a setter. Setter, you know, setter hitter. Um, so I, I think... I think the turning point was understanding talent in a different level than what most people were doing. Most people... Athleticism. Yeah, people were recruiting skill. We recruited talent and had a hard and fast line on that. If, if I just could not offer a scholarship to somebody that I thought would be limited in terms of... So you had to touch the rim if you were middle? This is back in the 70s. Really? Yeah. You had to do this if you were an outside. Um, and those people got good quick. Here's what's interesting to me. One of the many interesting things. But I'm going, I'm going to go down the list of All-Americans here. Uh, Karen Dahlgren's from Bertrand. Right. Enid Schoenweiss is from Beatrice. Right. Virginia Stair is from Waco. Yeah. Janet Cruz is from Fort Calhoun. Yeah. Kelly Aspergren is from Callaway. Megan Corver's from Panama. Yeah. I mean, what the heck, Terry? Are you just like uh, driving around the, D, the, D, the D2 gymnasiums in the fall or what? Well, I did, I did do a clinic in every town um, that it had its own water system. <laughs> uh, 
So you're just looking for water towers on the horizon? Is that what you're no, doing? No, I just, I don't, I don't know where I got the idea to do this, but I just did it. Now, there was a tradition, though, right? I mean, because Nebraska high schools, had, some of them, especially the small towns, had been playing volleyball for for decades. They played in the 40s in the western part of the state. Okay. So when I first arrived in 77, the state championship, I believe, was in Kearney. And there were teams out, out in the western part of the state that won the state championship. The, the strongest team in the East at that time was Waverly High School. Uh, but that changed pretty quickly. Because the big schools weren't playing, right? Well, they were playing. Or they were just I, starting. No, they were just starting. Okay. But, but we had, uh, uh, you know, for what happened to take place takes two things. And it's easy to recognize the university's role in this and, and becoming a model and educating. But the part that people are slow to recognize is the commitment from a core group of high school coaches who were as passionate about the game as, as the university was. And we're talking about people like Sandy Genrick at Lincoln Northeast. Myron King at Lincoln East, Christy Nelson, who was at Lincoln High, Ann Royal at Omaha West Side, um, Joanne Kappas at uh, Bellevue, Steve uh, Morgan at Ogallala. Um, I'm trying to think of the North Platte coach. Uh, I, I can't. These people knew what the, these people knew what they were doing. And we hired them in our camps. And you know uh, where I think most people were going after other volleyball people. We hired Nebraska coaches to work our camps and basically tried to teach them what fundamentally what we were doing. Hmm. And so there was a Bill Rutt at Giltner. You recognized that this could be a pipeline type of deal. I don't think I was that aware. You know, I, I think a lot of it was luck, uh, and an, but an increasing awareness that... Um, uh, you know, just like in players, John um, Peterson, Columbus Scotus, is as good a coach as was anywhere. I even offered him a job as an assistant coach once. Steve Morgan was doing things that, uh, th these were creative people that were committed people putting in extra time. And we wanted them to feel like the, the Nebraska volleyball team was a state team. It was not a Lincoln team. It was not an Eastern Nebraska team. And so anything we could do, I, I felt a real responsibility. And I think John has done the same thing, that we have a responsibility. If you've got a question or, or something about how to do something better, we need to be there to provide it for you. We're a resource for you. And those kids they understood the culture. I mean, they, they understood, you know, we didn't have to hope they got something right. They grew up, they grew up, um, most of them or some of them on farms that didn't have a great crop every year, or they, they had part-time jobs, or so they fit. They weren't afraid of what we were asking them to do. The small town thing, and maybe it's just because I'm from a town of 400 people, but th that is really interesting to me. Like, well, what was, how, Karen Dahlgren comes from Bertrand. She's a walk-on. 
Yeah, you that, describe her coming into in, onto your team as a walk-on, and she can't serve the ball over the net. She can't. And three years later, she's the best player in the country. But she had the quickest feet I'd ever seen, and so I didn't know how that how we were going to use it. But I but I figured there's talent. Had the slide not come along, she wouldn't have been the MVP. The slide came along while she was a player. She went over to Europe with Kathy Note to play on a junior national team. They come back in the gym. They said, Coach, look at this. What do you think? What were, what were Middles doing before that? They were hitting A's or they were hitting, dropping off and hitting a five behind. Okay, so high ball. It was like, it was like having, you know, I hate to use a military metaphor, but it was, you know, it was, it was like having a, a weapon that was faster, more difficult to defend against than anybody had. Nobody had seen it. So when we go to the na national championship match in 86, there was a gasp when we're warming up. Really? Yeah. It was, it was a totally different move than, <laughs> than anybody had ever seen in American volleyball. And they were fit. You know, the, the other thing that all these kids have, they're all stubborn. They're all smart, smart and stubborn. I mean, stubborn to a, an ideal, stubborn to be good. That's, that's true of Endicott. That's true of Novak. That's, that, that's the key thing. These people, they don't let go. After the loss, they consider my voice an inappropriate companion to the pounding of their blood, hot with fatigue and disappointment. Their heads are bent like a ficus toward light, but there is no light. Instead, they wait for the practiced words that huddle in my brain, pocket change from losing. And I know that I can't reach them with words. And so we breathe in silence, a conspiracy of players and a coach, reassured by the rhythmic heaving of spent muscle, flesh, and synapse. Each letting go reminds us we were prepared, there was opportunity, we could have won. These unspoken truths are what we take with us. That and this solitude, this beautiful, tired breathing. In some ways, that could be after the win. Yeah. <laughs> because I remember in 95, if you came into our locker room after winning, we were exhausted. We were just sitting there. And, uh, you know, occasionally somebody would smile. But it isn't like the locker rooms you see now where three or four people with cameras are encouraging people to go crazy or whatever. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was just a really pleasant reflection and fatigue. And words are overrated at times like that. You know, that's why the... The one guy's call of the um, Olympic ice hockey victory was so good. He didn't say anything. And uh, a lot of the times, you know, like in bridge, you need to pass. And in coaching, you just need to keep quiet and let everybody uh, breathe. And part of that, Terry, is that you can talk too much, right? I mean, oh, yeah. I'm sure you learned that over yeah. the years. Yeah. That 
the less you speak, the more those words matter, right? Well, and particularly after a match, um, if there's a potential to say the wrong thing, that potential's greater at that moment because there's um, adrenaline going and coaches, sometimes we focus in on little things and we really don't see the larger picture. We'll have an idea that somebody didn't play well and then, and then you watch videotape and you think, you know what, that person played pretty well. But I, I was predisposed to see something that maybe she didn't do at the level that I wanted her to, or, the, or, or technically. So I, I encourage people to usually wait until the next day to offer a critique, you know, and let, you know, let's go get something to eat and uh, get on the plane and go home and we'll talk about it tomorrow. Let me ask you this. Five, ten years after you got out, you retired in 1999. Right, at the end of the 99 season. Five or ten years after you got out, what did you wish you could have gone back and done differently? What did you learn or what have you learned? Because you retired at 53. I mean, you, right. were, you were young. What did you, what did you figure out after you got out? I don't think that I figured out much that I didn't know even at the time. The things that I probably needed to change that would have kept me in coaching a little longer, I couldn't. Like what? Um, I, I didn't know how to do it without being all in all the time. Mm. You know, I, I, I couldn't do it in a, in a disciplined way. I couldn't go to a movie and not think about the third rotation. It was just all-consuming. So that when I began coaching uh, at Nebraska, it would take me about a you know, couple weeks to three weeks to recover from the season. By the time I ended, I hadn't fully recovered when the next season began. Really? Oh, no. Yeah, I just, my health. I just, I just, uh, uh, I just thought about all the options all the time. And that would manifest itself how? Well, I think it physically it, it manifested in itself. You know, I had some illness. I had uh, uh, fatigue. Um, I, loved, I loved the competition. I loved training. But to, to keep the program getting better, and you look at that last recruiting class with Gracia Lisapero, Laura Pilikowski, Amber Holmquist. That's as that's as good a class as you could recruit. You can't. You have to be. You have to be out there doing it every day. Um, I think some people, their constitution, is is better designed to handle that. You know, like I said here, I, I wish that if I went home, I would let it go. I don't know that I would, was ever capable of doing that. Um, I don't remember in the in season ever going to a movie and seeing the whole movie. You know, I remember leaving drive-ins in the middle of the movie uh, because I would start thinking about something 
wanting to write it down. Um, yeah, I yeah. You drove your family crazy. <laughs> well, I don't know. That you know, you'd have to ask the family. But one of the neat things about coaching at Nebraska is Catherine grew up grew up there in practice. I mean, she'd be under the official stand or beating on balls in the wall or or something. So I think she would tell you a lot of her independence, a lot of her courage, a lot of a lot of the things she does really well grew up because she was in that environment. Emma was uh, uh, wasn't born until 95, so she didn't have as much as that going on with her. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I remember Emma coming into my office in Fort Collins and she sat down next to me and she had just joined a club team, I, I think. So she must have been 12, maybe. She said, Dad, do you, do you know anybody that could train me to be a setter? And she was serious. <laughs> so, and you said, nope. <laughs> no, I gave her a, I gave her a videotape. <laughs> I gave her a videotape of her older sister when 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 Catherine was 12 and uh, it was a training tape video we made with Nikki Stricker and and who was the collegiate setter and Catherine who was just learning to set and so Emma takes this VHS goes in the other room and she comes back in and she says Catherine was pretty good wasn't she <laughs> I said, yeah. And you uh, said, who do you think taught her? <laughs> no, I, I really didn't say that. Um, uh, I think for the most part, um, I allowed them to initiate when we would uh, do stuff, work out. So I, I don't think I was, um, I don't think I was demanding in the sense that, you know, you've got to do this every day, whatever. you. Both of them loved it. I want to. I want to jump back just a, a bit. Um, this idea of all-consuming. It's a fascinating thing with coaches, not just coaches, but especially coaches. Um, you're not the only one who's like that. You know, Urban Meyer's talked about that. Um, Tom Osborne's talked about that. Why do you think some people are more? Why do you think some people can handle it and some people can't? I, I think that's genetic. Uh, I, in other words, I th yeah, I think that's a, a genetic issue. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know of many coaches that, that stay around for very long that don't spend the, the hours doing it. Right. Um, but I think some people, I, I think just uh, for whatever reason, it doesn't affect their physical health as much. Um, the only thing I could do that I or I didn't start thinking about volleyball was play golf. Mm. And Bill Byrne understood that. You know, I said, Bill, you know, the one thing on on, if, on weekends if we're not playing, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna play golf um, because it, it I was still competitive. And so it, you could channel it. In another I could channel, channel it in another direction. So I can't tell you. I can't tell you. Well, John Cook handles this this way, or 
Christy Johnson handles it that way. Um, you know, we all have demons that we manage to some degree. When I made the decision not to coach, that was just part of the reason. There was, an, there was another significant part. Um, one of the, um, oh, one of the businessmen in Lincoln used to bring in um, speakers in the spring. And he brought in a futurist. And this was in 96. And the futurist talked about things that at the time none of us had ever thought of. He talked about small groups of militia that weren't part of a country becoming terrorists. And he was talking about the Taliban. And he said, this is how wars are going to be fought in the future. And afterwards, I told him that, you know, that I, I was uh, battling something in my own mind. And that is that there, I was feeding this competitive drive, but I also had a very creative drive. And you can certainly be creative coaching. I mean, you can come up with different systems. You can come up with um, a different way to train something. But I mean to totally give in to creativity. Uh, I was a writer before I was a coach. And I was feeling the need to uh, what Jung would call it, the shadow side. So this man gave me a, um, suggested I read a book. And it was about, it was about not ignoring your shadow side. And that, that gave me a different understanding of what I was dealing with. I think, um, I think I might have coached a, 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 at least a couple more years. You know, I just thought, well, I, I know I'm going to break here somewhere. I don't want to turn up to be six, 60 years old and find out I did not give any attention to this other um, drive that I have. So all the time I was coaching, I was also writing, but not with, not with the intent of directing things or, or, or writing in a way that somebody would ever see it. I continued to write poems, continued to write some essays, etc. And I felt that I couldn't really do that until I left coaching. So went to a, a bar for lunch with Bill after coming back from the Final Four in, in, in Madison and said, I said, you know what, it's, if I'm coaching a team trying to win, that's competitive. But if I'm helping someone else try to win, that's creative. And so I said, uh, what I'd like to do, I said, I'd like to mentor all the coaches here and be a coach advocate, be an advocate for the coaches and help them work through things that, you know, from my own experience. And to his credit, he only argued with me for, you know, a few minutes. And I said, not only that, I said, I'll go, get, I, I know the person who can come here and do this. And, you know, people ask me about that because other people want to do that. And I said, I, I don't think that's a good model because when people hire, when the former head coach or the former, former or, uh, owner of a vegetable stand chooses the person to follow them, 
they tend to look for somebody that appears similar. And what you don't want is somebody who has the same philosophy but doesn't have talent. Right. And so, you know, I think I think that's I think Coach Devaney knew that when he gave the reins to Coach Osborne. He recognized this person has different talents than I have. Um, and John is John's talents are certainly different than mine, but I knew that he was, you know, like all successful head coaches, he's like a dog with a rag. He's not going to let go. So he, it, it's not a question of, am I always doing the right thing? Am I always making the right decisions? The real question is, am, am I doing it? Am I always there? Am I always passionate about it? So his determination was... His will. His will. His will. You know, there, there, there are other people that I thought could do it. Uh, I thought uh, Jim McLaughlin, who was at Kansas State at the time. I, I, completely different from John and yet very similar to John. But there weren't a lot. There weren't a lot of people because I think you had to appreciate the, the culture of Nebraska. And a lot of people don't want to step into a situation like that where, you know, you might fail. What 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 is there to gain in, in doing this? Okay, I, I, I get, you're saying four different things that I could grab onto in one answer. So I'm going to try to grab okay. sections of this. Okay. You're sitting at a speaker in 1996 who's talking about what what our culture and what our civilization is going to look like in 10, 20 years. And you're, you're having this internal tension that you've obviously had for quite a while. Right. Uh, you don't feel creatively challenged. Um, so, or stimulated. In the way, in, in, I didn't have the opportunity to write. That's, that's really what it, what it was. You know, that's... And that uh, was bothering you that much. Yeah. Even after a national championship. The championship... Um, you know, the, my feeling about the championship was, what difference does it make if if we win another one? You know, what what what's the difference? We've, you know, were you driven by the first one? Oh sure, sure, sure. I was. I think Bill helped me with that. You know, I, I think I was more driven, and many coaches are, by not losing, than necessarily winning. But I think Bill said to me one day, well, he says, "When are you going to win a national championship?" And I said, "Great." Let's go do it. And the thing was, you have to feel, I said great because it's wonderful when you have an athletic director who aligns with you. And when an AD says something like that, it means I'll provide the resources to help you do what you want to do. But you didn't feel the same way after you won it. Did I feel like, boy, let's go, I need to win another one? No, no. Um, in, in the same way, um, no. I, no. I mean, you're you're 49 years old at right. the time when you win it in December of '95, which was the oldest anybody had ever won it. We were a young sport. But you move into the next year and you start kind of getting an itch. Uh, when did the itch start, Terry? I I think. 
the very first year I coached, I would write, I would have an exercise where I would write out and resign, uh, n not with any real intent of turning it in, <laughs> but but I I felt just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should keep doing it. It's really fascinating to hear you say that. <laughs> it may be counterintuitive, but I had something else I thought I could do. You know, I, I, I thought I could mentor. I thought I, uh, other coaches. I thought I could present on leadership and team building. I thought I, I wasn't as sure but I hoped that I could write well enough that people would respond to it. Um, so, and I had, I had encouragement from Ann. Uh, you know, I don't think the people that were close to me were, were saying, boy, you don't want to do this. Because uh, I, I, and I also felt, you know what, if this doesn't work out, I don't think I'm going to have too much trouble getting a job. <laughs> You know, I mean... Uh, okay, let, let me grab another thread. The parallels with Osborne are uncanny. I mean, you know, from from the timeline of your career to, you know, retiring somewhat early to just kind of being worn down physically to the psychological obsession with... Did you guys talk about stuff? Did you have a relationship? What did you gain from him? What did he maybe gain from you? I watched him a lot. I watched the program a lot and made the decision early on to link ourselves with this program rather than fight against it, use it as an ally. And, and sometimes in very literal ways, when we would, we would uh, have matches immediately following a football game, my assistants and I would go through the stadium the day before and put up signs above every toilet in the, in the stadium. Really? Yeah. In other words, try and get these people involved because on the rare occasion when Nebraska football loses, those people don't want to go home. They want to see somebody win. Okay. As time went on, I think Tom really uh, was kind to me and reached out. And so he um, go, would go fishing with him after his heart attack. Uh, he asked me to go flying with him and um, so uh, it was his first flight our first piloting experience after his heart attack we went up and fished in uh, north central Nebraska um, I admired I admired how he treated people you know he, he did something so well that I could that that were I could never even aspire to, but how he treated, um, well, you've seen it in video, how he treats somebody that's a custodian or somebody working or, um, uh, you know, I admired that, um, uh, I admired that when he really wanted to make a point, he spoke softer rather than louder. I admired the consistency of it. Um, uh, it reminded me in ways of, of Berkshire Hathaway. Mm. I, I, I admired that too, that there was no um, hype. There's no hype. You know what you're getting, it's consistent. You know, it's one thing to be good, it's another thing to be good every day. And I, I, I thought 
Nebraska football set the table for Nebraska volleyball because when I went in a home in recruiting somebody in Texas in the early years before we'd established ourselves, um, they might not know about Nebraska volleyball, but there's a pretty good chance that the mom or the dad knew about Nebraska football. So it opened a door for us. Um, so, you know, I watched. Why, why did they win? Why did they lose? What, why did they, you know, when they struggled? Um, and uh, a lot of it had to do with talent. You know, when, when Coach Osborne left, um, you, you lost one of the best coaches in the country, and you also lost the best recruiter, the guy that closes. And the idea that the system would carry it forward, systems don't carry things forward. Hmm. Talent carries things forward. And the, the talent, from the outside looking in, the talent in the years that followed him began to get thinner and thinner. And we just aren't that, we aren't that good as coaches that we can make up, you know, make up for talent you can't you can coach people up you can't coach them up to national championships you know you have to have in volleyball you have to have at least three 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 or four players that you say that kid could play internationally in basketball it's that kids can play in, you know in the NBA in football it's those are first round draft choices and when I first came to Nebraska and I would cut across the football field, I didn't know football, but I knew athletes, and there were athletes. There were, you know, great athletes. So it took me about five years to learn that. When, when I first came at, to Nebraska and recruited the first year or two, you know, I, I was looking more for skill, but I changed my whole philosophy, pivoted on talent choosing talent over skill. Let's get athletes and then we can make them into skilled volleyball players. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a diagram I use that I got from Talent Plus. And up in one corner you've got high talent, high skill. LeBron James. Okay. There aren't many of them. And maybe you get, um, maybe you get one every now and then. That's a Gracia Lee Sapero, Sarah Pavin. Then you've got low skill, low talent. If if you if you go there, you're you're selling insurance two years later, or some you're doing something else other than coaching. So most of the decisions fall on these other two boxes: high skill, low talent; high talent, low skill. I always chose that box. Always chose high talent, uh, low skill, with the idea that we can't catch up and beat Stanford and, and be better than USC if, we're, if we'll always be behind if we're recruiting the next best level skill athlete. Right. So very quickly, uh, you know, in the early 80s, we could walk out and I could say, well, I don't know about volleyball, but we, we can out-athlete these people. You know, whether that's enough, I don't know. And uh, that, that came about really because of um, 
the gentleman, you know, I, that, that was reaffirmed to me when I read the book Soar With Your Strengths hmm. by the fellow that was um, helped found uh, Gallup and, and some of that before that. And the idea that I wasn't looking for all-around people. I was, if you were going to be on Nebraska volleyball, you had to do something, whether it was a lateral move, a vertical jump, arm speed, you had to do something at a highly extraordinary level. Huh. And that we could fit those parts together. Did you have a favorite team? Well, it's hard not to, it's hard not to like the leadership that was in 95. Right. Uh, um, I'm not even sure our team, I think the leaders did, but I'm not even sure the team as a whole did because when we came back the next year for the first practice and we're sitting around talking, some of the younger kids are saying, well, at least we haven't got those guys ragging on us. You know, I'm not sure they understood it. But I never had, t I never had a team I didn't like. You know, it just, it just didn't happen. You were hard on, I mean, you were hard on players. Um, you were demanding. You were, uh, you, you challenged them mentally in ways that maybe some other coaches weren't. Uh, there's an example. How, how, how do you know? There's an example I found in our archives about uh, at taking a, a weak server and putting her on the line, and she has to hit a spot 20 times. Yeah. And Tammy for, Thompson, she missed every one. For every one she misses, her teammates <laughs> have to run a line drill. Right. That's some pretty heavy stuff for you know. For well, but here's the key. There, there's a little zen in that. Um, that that comes about, you know, the Zen master goes to a student and he says, I'm going to whack you in, in the back of the head sometime this year. So the student walks around, you know, flinching everywhere he goes. But sooner or later he figures out, I can't control this, so I might as well relax. As soon as he relaxes, the Zen master says, you've, you've learned the lesson. With Tammy Thompson, what she needed to learn to do was to relax. I can't focus on outcome here. Now, it would be unfair if we just left her there and didn't work with her to understand that. You know, so it's when you ask something of somebody, you also have to provide a path, you know. To, to get it done. Right. And to get it done, they're going to have to be uncomfortable because you're asking them for a mindset or a movement that they're not familiar with. And some people make the move just like that, and, and some don't, and some never do. And um, you can't, a coach can't control that. But, but I can't name a player that wasn't be significantly better as a senior than they were when the, their freshman sophomore years. They get better, you know. They they. Uh, I, I think you'd have to ask players because I, at the time, I didn't feel that I was hard, but I've heard other people say that, um, uh, you know, that Graciously Sapero is one that said, "I loved it. I loved being." challenged every day and I only coached her for one year yeah um, but she said I love he would not let me get away with being just good how did your players respond when you would drop a Norman Mailer 
uh, reference in practice or uh, did it did it help? Did it was there a boundary there? Like how did you it, how did you blend those two parts I, of your life? Not well initially. I remember <laughs> my first year coaching, and I I quoted an E. E. Cummings poem, and everybody just kind of just didn't make contact with anybody else. I <laughs> <laughs> contact with anybody else. Um, so I didn't try to do that as much. Um, I would write letters at the beginning of a season on where we were going and, 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 uh, or what I thought, what I thought we were trying to move to. Um, but did you felt like they knew you? Boy, because you're sort of compartmentalizing this part of your life, you know, for 23 years. Um, I think some did. Uh, um, I think if I think Val Novak, Fiona Nepo, I think this the people that played that position, um, they saw they saw a different side, you know. Um, maybe I don't I don't know. Those people still check in all the time, you know. Uh, Probably um, two weeks don't go by before Novak will send me something to you know, um, and there are there are players that played other positions as as well, but for the most part they probably saw more of who I was. They also received kind of a, of an unconditional support. You've probably heard this before, but. I never subbed a setter out. Twenty-three years. That's that's loony. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted them to know that I was asking them to do so much that I never wanted them looking un- over at the bench and wondering, "Am I good enough?" The backup didn't like that very much. <laughs> well. He, uh, I, I did start a different setter in one game than the, pre, than the game before. We were, um, Stephanie Thader tore her ACL in the Big 8 championship game. And she was one of the top three or four players in the country. And Nikki Stricker was a great quick attack setter. Christy Johnson was a more consistent outside setter. So we went to play Colorado, who we just lost the Big Eight time, the first time we ever lost a conference championship. We had to play them in the first round of the tournament. And took Allison Weston, moved her from right side into the middle, moved Billy Winsett to the right side. And this required Christie's skill set. So Christie started the match and we won. And Nikki, Nikki proved it. You know, Nikki. Nikki actually came in at one point in the match as a sub for a middle blocker. Um, but I, 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 I do think that one thing they respected, it, you know, they didn't all play for the same person. Uh, uh, they, some played for a very inexperienced coach. Some played for a very experienced coach. Mm. Some played for somebody who might have been wiser in some situations. Some played for one who maybe had more energy. But I do think that they understood if he's making a decision about who's on the court, 
he only does it for one reason. You know, in other words, I don't think they would ever question what the motivation was. Right. If he thinks that this kid can help us reach our goal, he's going to play that kid. It's you know, it's he's he's too competitive not to. Did your writing get better after you retired? I think overall, yes. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, uh, in what ways? Just more time to think. I think there's a cu- I think there's a, a couple different reasons. Uh, one, when you're 21, 25, what, you really don't have much to say. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what I mean, what, what do you know? <laughs> uh, now, now another. Hey, uh, I would tell uh, you that Springsteen wrote "Born to Run" when he was 25. So. Well, okay. no, but there, there, there's and there. Uh, Gladwell talks about this, Malcolm Gladwell, the New Yorker, that there are two ways that artists kind of develop. Some burst on the scene, Picasso was one. Some people write brilliant things in their 20s and and never quite ever reach that again. And then there's, I think the artist he uses is Cezanne, who becomes much better uh, after years. And, and, I, and I, I'm just a hack. But I think I'm a better hack now than I was earlier um, because I read things differently. You know, when I read an when I read a an article, I'm reading it really in two or three different ways. It's I'm reading the content, but I'm also reading how does he do this? You know, that's the same question I ask all the time if I'm watching Nebraska basketball or football or or the Lakers or whatever, how, why does that work? What's your favorite? Well, probably the title poem is certainly would be in there. If I can find it here. Um, this is a poem that I think people is more of a litany, but it was really written out of appreciation for the coaches and teachers that trained and coach the people that we got to play. It's called Today We're Losing a Teacher. Today we're losing a teacher. Today we're losing someone who taught us to see the difference between the light and a Renoir and a Monet. Today we're losing someone who taught us the shock of recognition Melville felt when he first met Hawthorne. Today we're losing someone who said there is a difference whether you spell gray with an E or an A. Today we're losing a person who taught us about the golden mean and how pleased we are when we see a nautilus shell or a window in the right proportions. Today we're losing the person who introduced us to the lines of Robert Frost which read, one ought not to care when the birds fly round the house and seem to say goodbye. But of course we do care, that was his point. Today we're losing a coach who taught us a fireman's role, a jab step, a somersault at the end of the pool, Today we're losing a sponsor for the letter club, the student council, and the band. At the university, graduates wait with diplomas to become engineers, entrepreneurs, and MBAs. Life awaits with guaranteed contracts, stock options, limousines with exotic names. But who's going to teach us about why the boy in Faulkner's short story refuses to shoot the bear? Who's going to show us the innate beauty in mathematics? Who's going to tell us about Crazy Horse and Willa Cather? 
Who, when we've done our best and things don't go our way, when we've studied hard and failed the test, who, when we get open and take the last shot and miss, is going to tell us everything will be okay? Today, we're losing a teacher. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app or check us out at omaha.com slash podcast. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have feedback, please email me at dirk period chattelaine at owh.com and check out Terry Pettit's new poetry book at terrypettit.com. We'll see you next week.